This is Tony Johnson with Heron.org Soundbites. I'm here today with Tom Van Dyke of RBC Wealth Management. Hi, Tom. Hi, Tony. How are you doing? Heron and Tonic are working on a joint program looking at some of the asset managers and advisors that work with Tonic members. And could you give a brief overview of the types of impact services that RBC provides and maybe sketch out a typical impact client that you have? The way we look at impact is across the entire portfolio. And so what we call that is integrating environment, social, and governance criteria to mitigate risk and to generate ideally alpha or outperformance associated with those criteria. And that means that you do it in the public equities, in the bonds, in the private equity, you do it across the entire asset allocation of the portfolio. And then you choose to use shareholder engagement at those opportunities where you think that you can leverage change and create change more quickly. So our client base is predominantly foundations, the trustees of those foundations, the entrepreneurs that are leading the change in our society from from one to more clean technology, from one based on burning a carbon molecule, and ultra-high individuals and celebrities that are using their brand to advance the new vision of where the world needs to go to be more sustainable. So that's, and and they believe, our, our clients really look at investment as the economic expression of their thoughts. So our job is to use that thinking, using the environment, social, and governance criteria. And what's actually happened is with the divest, invest movement, the idea of divesting from fossil fuels and burning carbon to investing in clean technology or using renewable sources to produce an electron, which is going to be the largest wealth generation shift of our, of, of our lifetime. And it's going to affect every element of our economy. That discussion with the divestment, invest movement has gone into investment committees around the world. And they they realize that the E, in this case the environment, has identified a risk, high carbon assets. That awareness that there's, there was an economic risk there has led committees that are not just like ours, but normal investors to start considering if there's an E element here, if there's a risk that the environment has pointed out, is there something in the social and governance area? Like, do we need diversified boards that have women and people of color on it? Would that help our company and our brand get more market share and grow better? Do we treat our employees as assets or costs? These types of factors that the environment, social, and governance criteria identify actually lead, you know, lead to the bottom line of a company. Are they more productive, fewer sick days on the employee side? Are we more sustainable so that we use our resources more efficiently so they're not wasted or we have to produce a toxic that we then need to watch for 10, 20, or 25,000 years depending upon the process? Are we able to use less energy? Are we shifting our entire business model to create our product in the way that's most sustainable, that works with our employees in a way that keeps them and empowers them to stay here and as well as fit into our communities in a way Way that's responsible. Basically looking to take the exploitative elements of capitalism out of the business model and move into more innovative elements of capitalism so that we can evolve as a society, as a culture, as a planet. On that note, how did RBC come about? It sounds like that you're, if you're primarily doing impact, how did you get your start and was there a learning curve? I've been doing this for over 30 years. I came in the field in 1983 with the sole focus of using the capital markets to not only generate investment return within the risk objectives of our clients, right, withdrawal needs, et cetera, all the financial objectives, but also to be consistent with the values and the mission of that investor. My clients have only been that. I've only worked with investors who are interested in, in not only meeting their financial needs, but also doing it consistent with their values and 
their mission. Traditional investors, the way they look at things and, and the misnomers that they have, there's a couple of, that are out there because Fox is, is the fact that you have to give up return for applying an environment, social, and governance factor on your portfolio because that's not true. The other fact is that regulations cost jobs. If you're interested in a deregulated capitalistic system, you just need to go to Beijing and China to see what that looks like. As Elon Musk said last week, by not pricing carbon, it's like allowing these companies to dump garbage in the streets and not pay to have it picked up, but have the taxpayers who also share those streets pay to pick up their garbage. Regulations actually help define the playing field of capitalism to limit the exploitative elements of capitalism, which is two things. They exploit the environment and they exploit labor more efficiently than any other system in the world. So you don't allow people to, to externalize costs off their balance sheets onto the taxpayers' balance sheets. In other words, like Elon Musk said, where it's, by not pricing carbon is allowing the fossil fuel industry to throw garbage in the streets and have the taxpayers pick it up. So, so in a free market, pollution is ultimately a subsidy, right? So if you put regulations in place, so the externalities don't come off the balance sheets of companies but are actually embedded and are reflected in the price of the product itself. That's why by not pricing carbon, they're getting a free ride. If you priced it, the true cost of producing power from fossil fuels would be more accurately reflected. That would then allow innovation to take place because you don't have someone cheating the system because they're truly embedding their costs in the price of their product. Just to go back to this idea of what is impact, how broadly do you decide what's an impact investment? So how do you think about that? And thinking about, particularly with public companies, seem to take a, a multi-asset class approach, which Heron also does. How do you think about the various rating systems and screening methodologies? Are there some that you're really excited about? Or do you have any ideas about what kind of work needs to be done in this space? So we use a lot of different technologies and databases, and obviously you've seen many of them develop over the last, over that period of time. You know, we use things like Bloomberg's Analytics, MSCI, KLD. We have our own database that we built out, obviously, over that time, as you'd imagine. So we use the information that's available, that's new and, and, and out there on the different management teams to, you know, to overlay those environmental, social, and governance criteria onto companies across asset classes, large, international, emerging, small. I mean, obviously, there's more information available on larger companies than there are on smaller companies, both in the U.S. and in emerging markets, and that's more difficult to get the information, but certainly with the internet available. You know, be able to get the information and to be able to see, you know, what these companies are doing and how the management teams are handling things. Um, I think is only going to become easier in time with increased transparency. I think the thing that people would prefer to do is, can you just give me a list? It's like, no, no, no. Investing is hard. It's not a list type situation because there's areas of gray when you're making these determinations between the environment, social, and governance factors when evaluating a company. So if you can evaluate companies within sectors and compare them against each other, ultimately what you're doing is the ESG criteria that help identify a quality management team will lead to better bottom line performance over the long term. So how closely do you track impact performance? Some of the folks that we've talked to over the years say, you know, their clients are happy with anecdotes for example. If you could talk a little bit about your impact and what happens if a company is not doing so hot on impact, how do you talk to your clients about actively either engaging or divesting? Like I said, we, we invest in large companies all the way down to private companies. So it depends on what you want to measure. Ultimately, one of the measurements is return, right? 
And we would want, ideally, our portfolios to generate larger return over benchmark with less risk. So that's the goal. Return is an impact, I think, because every investment you make has an impact. The question is, what kind of impact do you want? And then how do you want to measure it? And I would say that our clients measure impact by kind of what the company is doing. If they're looking for above market return with above market risk with a focus on environmental sustainability, then we will go find private equity investment, right? And a manager that will help identify those kind of companies. That's, I mean, I think it's a combination of a multitude of factors as to how you measure the impact of an investment uh, from that perspective. On the negative side, so that's the positive side. On the negative side, you say, okay, how do you deal with it when, say, you own a company that had passed the ESG screens and the financial screens to get into a portfolio, manager portfolio, and now it's going sideways. So let's take an example of one. A long time ago, there was an oil company where they changed the CEO. It was uh, British Petroleum. They moved from Laura Brown, who in Kyoto actually said climate change is a problem, and he got replaced by another person that did not have the same type of vision. And you could start seeing the deterioration of the company take place well before the Gulf of Mexico's issue. When we said, okay, this is a whole different scenario that we had when we entered the situation, so we had our managers remove the company from the portfolio. You have to constantly kind of keep updating, evaluating, and talking, and looking at what the companies are doing from an ongoing perspective. You know, shareholder engagement is a tool that can be used to make a company actually, I would think, better. So most of them are publicly traded companies. It's not the Carl Icons and the Bill Gates of the world that own the most stock. It's actually teachers and government employees. So these management teams of these public companies are actually accountable to teachers and government employees, the actual public, if they choose to use the power of the proxy to engage these companies in dialogue to point out where there might be risk within their behaviors that might undermine the value of the company to the shareholder. As an example, Best Buy where we saw that there was a need to recycle and we went to Best Buy and said there's an opportunity here to increase foot traffic in our stores and get more people coming in. We asked everyone how many people have like old TV sets and computers in their house that you don't know what to do with. Everyone raises their hands essentially and it's like, okay, what if we took them back in our store? They tried it. They said this is working. They did on all 1,000 stores. So there's ways in which shareholder dialogue can work where it works the best are with these companies where they've already have a high quality management team both from a financial and ESG perspective. The more difficult shareholder engagements are those where the management team may be not good in either of those other areas, specifically the ESG um, and the financial, where it becomes much more antagonistic because you're looking to shift the corporations to what their primary function of business is. And in those situations, there's no need for our client to maintain a full position in keeping the risk in the portfolio because why would you do that? Why would you expose the portfolio to greater risk just so you could dialogue with a company? Lower the position to a de minimis amount where you can still maintain dialogue, where you can still organize other shareholders to go in and have these fruitful discussions with these companies in hopes they're going to change, but knowing that the characteristics are going to be very difficult going into it. So since you've been doing this for such a long time, I'm interested to know, why do you think this is happening now? I mean, impact investing seems to be gaining increasing momentum. More people are entering the space, larger institutions, both as investors and managers, have gotten into the space. What's going on, and does this relate to any longer-term economic trends in your view? So here's what I think is happening on a large scale as to why this is becoming more adopted. Like we discussed, the divest-invest movement, this huge movement, right, that is pointing out risk in portfolios, it's pointing out risk to the planet, society, and how we need to change. So that is led by the great groups of 350.org, Carbon Tracker, Sierra Club, Boat Solar. They're all pushing this idea into the discussion because they're saying, okay, here is a risk. These assets are going to be stranded. 
those assets are reflected in the stock prices of the various fossil fuel companies today. There's your risk. And of course, in the last 18 months, anybody that had invested three years ago did a lot better than someone who's not because you didn't have that risk, right? The energy sector was down 21% last year. The key is this is kind of the, the head of the spear that's going into these committees. And the committees are saying, are there other factors, governance and social factors that we need to be evaluating? So it's the divest invest movement in many ways, and this realization that we cannot continue to burn carbon to produce and to function as, as a society. We need to shift to renewable sources, which the good news is, guess what? They're cheaper, they're cleaner, they're more efficient. And that shift of the technology and where we're going, that's where this wealth is going to be created from. And it's that megatrend combined with the idea of transparency, combined with millennials who are inheriting wealth, who realize that, in fact, over 50% of millennials who have over a million dollar net worth, which means they've generally inherited it as opposed to make it. There are some that have made it, but the vast majority will be inheriting that are putting some sort of environmental, social, and governance factors on their portfolio. Why? Because they realize that they don't want to invest in something that's going to lead to the destruction of the planet before they even have kids. And the kids are going to look and say, well, what kind of world did you leave us? You know, well, were you invested for maximum return and exploitation? Well, in fact, it wasn't even maximum return. It was just straight exploitation. We have enough data out there now with the different managers and the Domini Index that demonstrate there is no need for you to underperform to put an environment, social, and governance factor on your portfolio. Thank you, Tom. For Heron.org, this is Tony Johnson. As a disclaimer, past performance is not indicative of future results. The information is not intended to be used as the primary basis of investment decisions. Because of individual client requirements, it should not be construed as advice designed to meet the particular investment needs of any investor. The opinions expressed here are those of the author and are not necessarily the same as those of RBC Wealth Management or its research department. RBC Wealth Management did not assist in the preparation of the material and makes no guarantee as to its accuracy or the reliability of the sources used for its preparation. RBC Wealth Management, a division of RBC Capital Markets, LLC, member of the New York Stock Exchange, FINRA, and SIPC. Thank you.